0: Greetings and hello to everyone. This is the Business of Betting podcast and I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today is episode 15 and we have a very special guest, Joe Fortenboar. Joe is an expert at NFL, college football, fantasy, all well, sports in general. He hosts a radio show in San Francisco and has been releasing great betting and sports content for years. Joe joined the podcast to chat about all things betting, NFL, season wins, college football, the NFL Draft, and more. Joe has lived and breathed Vegas, covered the San Francisco sports scene for the last few years, and is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to U.S. sports and betting. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. As always, you can find us at businessofbetting.com or at bettingpod on Twitter. Please fire in any questions or feedback and potential guests you would like to hear from. So thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy my chat with Joe Fortenbaugh. Today we have a very special guest. I'm joined by Joe Fortenboer. Joe, thank you very much for joining me.
1: My pleasure to be here, Jake. I'm glad we were finally able to connect. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast.
0: Yeah, this is going to be fun. Um, So Joe, why don't you take us through a little bit about your background and and how you got into betting, maybe some of the, the early years for you and how you developed your knowledge in the betting space?
1: Well, I currently live in San Francisco, where I'm the uh, morning show host on 95.7 The Game. We're the flagship station for the Warriors, the Oakland A's, and the Oakland Raiders. Before here, I was living in Las Vegas for three years. And before there, I'm originally from the East Coast, which is where I was. I did my undergraduate work at Penn State. I did my law degree work at Thomas Jefferson in San Diego. But I've been interested in sports betting for quite some time. I mean, even since I was a kid, I think the first wager I ever made was Penn State, Notre Dame. It was like five bucks with a friend. And it's funny to say now because I, I bet on Notre Dame, but I ended up going to Penn State. So grew up with a lot of Penn State fans. But when I was working for a website called the National Football Post, um, I started diving into covering the business of sports betting. Um, because I, I could tell, or at least I had a suspicion that the market was about to blow up. That at some point, legalization would occur. And that when it did, if I had been in Vegas and I knew the bookmakers and the professional gamblers, that maybe it would give me an inside track towards you know a career with a big media outlet. And the radio opportunity came first, but I had a great time in Vegas. And you know I continue to stay on top of the industry.
0: So one of the reasons why I started the podcast was to... I guess, not only educate myself, luckily being the host, I can ask any question I want, but also just the average better out there and getting some of the professionals that I read and and some of their content that I consume and and talk to them about what they're doing. What is your approach as a radio host in, uh, in the Bay Area to, I guess, the development and education of the average better? Because based on my, you know, let's say limited experience around the world, whether it be Australia growing up, lived in Europe for a while, I've lived in the US for a number of years now, what, what are you thinking when you're discussing uh, sports betting and putting out some of your content for the average better?
1: Well, it's limited on, uh, on air because while we do have listeners and people in general who like to hear about point spreads and games, the bottom line is that the majority of the people aren't necessarily going to be making wagers. So I've got to make sure I'm speaking to our audience and I've got to be able to make sure that I'm giving them what they want. And in San Francisco, that's warrior talk. That's Raider and Niner talk. That's Giants and A's talk. And you kind of play the hits is the uh, phrase we use around the station. Now on Fridays during football season, I have a beat the bookie segment where I'll pick five to eight total games between college and pro, and that's been going well for two years. And there is a niche audience that enjoys a lot of that stuff. So it's something that's giving me a a bit of a different layer compared to the other radio hosts in town. But if I need an outlet to connect with the listeners or the readers, I should say I um do a lot of freelancing and a podcast I started at covers.com. So I can get some of my information out there. And then Twitter is a great space to share information with people.
0: So what is your style for approaching games? Let's say NFL, for example, do you have a certain approach? Do you go back and see what the look headlines were, say a week ago when you're looking at games? Or do you go in with a blank slate? Or sort of what is your gambling mindset?
1: I would probably call myself a purveyor of information. You have a lot of different types of handicappers out there. You have situational handicappers. You have handicappers that are really good at taking all the emotion out of it and strictly playing numbers. I'm a guy that has put myself in a position where I'm very fortunate that I know a lot of smart people. I know them on both sides of the counter. And between knowing guys that are in the industry, reading guys who understand the industry, I kind of take a collective approach where I gather as much information as I can from people who are smarter than myself, people who have more time to spend on it than myself, and I'll use that as a way to sort of gauge where the sharp action's at. I'll also track a lot of line movements, and then some of it'll just be gut instinct. You know, I I watch sports for a living, I'm watching them all the time, so I'll have a for when a certain team might be walking into a tricky spot or for when another team's really starting to peak at the right time. So it's ai wouldn't say it's one specific element to my to my handicapping. It's really a collection of gathering information, reading the right resources, putting in the research, and using a little bit of gut instinct.
0: So has that altered over the years? Because I would imagine, for example, baseball, there's so many games you can't possibly watch all those games. Uh, there's a lot of stats. It's very stat-heavy, and the sabermetrics now are – Flowing, you know heavily with regards to baseball and it's certainly the case in football, but it's more watching games I would imagine have you been able to sort of develop your approach and use the different tools that you mentioned over time Or has it been pretty steady as you've as you've gone along?
1: The approach has been relatively steady from a handicapping standpoint what what I'm always looking to improve is money management and betting strategy that's what I need to get get as good at as possible. And I, I'd recommend that to anyone out there. Your money management is going to be your most important element. You can't put yourself in a position where you lose two or three games in a row on a college football Saturday and then try to chase it all back with Hawaii at night because you've had five or six beers. I've been there. I know exactly what that's like. I'll never try to pretend like I haven't made mistakes like that. I've done it with the Sunday night game in the NFL. I've done it with Sunday night baseball. I've done it in a variety of contexts. The key, though is to improve upon your handicapping. And while you can always work on new systems and and, and put in more research and try to meet different and cr- more creative individuals who might have some insights to share, the key is to always find discipline in your betting. Never in- increase your limits unless you can, A, handle those increases financially, and B, because you're increasing, you must have some sort of edge. Don't increase it just for the sake of increasing it. So that's where I always try to improve, the amount, I'm willing to wager the frequency with which I wager and trying to stay away from spots that are dangerous, but just because I'm a junkie chasing some action.
0: Yeah, we've, I've, certainly we've all been there, no doubt. Yeah. You mentioned uh, some of the gut feeling, and, and I like to talk about those buzzwords in sports, especially with, for example, NFL. To what extent are you using, let's say, the eye test or the trained eye or whatever it might be versus the stats and analytics? Is that the same for all sports?
1: I would say it plays more of a role in pro and college football and the NBA because I watch more of that. I watch a lot of baseball, but again, the amount of baseball I watch compared to the amount of baseball games that are played, I'd say it's a smaller percentage than say in hoops or football. I'm watching a, a large percentage of games that are being played. So the gut instinct just plays the tip of the iceberg type role. I might suspect something with an over or an under I might suspect something with a side. And that's where the research comes into play. The text messages, the phone calls, talking to individuals I know that are real smart, talking to them about what I might be feeling, what I might be thinking. Where do you land on this? We'll have a couple conversations. Then you'll dive into some research. You'll try to back it all up. You'll look for reasons to stay away from the bet. But when it's all said and done, if the gut instinct is backed up by a good number, good research, and good confirmation from people you trust and know, then you might go ahead and fire on it. So I'd say the gut instinct just plays a a small role. It's kind of the tip of the iceberg when it comes to football and hoops wagers.
0: Yep. Okay. So one thing I've always been fascinated by is season wins. It seems to be something in the U S that's massive. Whereas for, to a large extent, the rest of the world, you don't find a lot of talk about, you know, win totals and things like that. Maybe for the dumb Australian, who's the host, why is it that season wins are such a huge part of the sporting vernacular here in the U S and, what is your approach to season wins?
1: Well, it gives you something to track for a long duration of time. I think a lot of people like it because you can make an investment, however small, say maybe it's a hundred dollars, but it could play out for five or six months. So it feels like you're really getting bang for your buck. Now, there are a lot of professionals who hate the idea of season win totals because they don't want to tie up a large percentage of their bankroll in something that's gonna take six, seven months to come to fruition. I can understand that because those are the guys that are playing in Las Vegas. But if you have an offshore book or an ability to play on credit, which, let's be honest, that can be uh, more of a, uh, I'll say, less legal style of, of sports wagering, right. um, it, it, it's, it can be a fantastic option for you to put in the research and the study. Of. I, I personally, I love season win totals. I'll try to find one or two I play in every sport every year, just something to track. Now, it requires a lot of research. You're going to run a lot lot of the Pythagorean theorem research, you're going to talk to a lot of individuals, you've got to put a lot of time into this, but I enjoy making a sizable wager on one specific team and then tracking them all year. In football last year, it was an under on the San Francisco 49ers. In baseball this season, I've currently got unders on the Philadelphia Phillies and Detroit Tigers, which look good and under on the New York Yankees, which looks terrible at the moment. So I'm tracking those throughout the season. But that's what I I, I really enjoy, just having that one- or two-team situation where I'm following these guys on a nightly basis. I do feel like I'm getting a lot of bang for my buck.
0: No, I can understand that. I guess it it certainly makes for great conversation coming up to the start of the season. I know now it's July in my world is prime season win total talks and certainly a lot of fantasy-related talks. And I want to touch on fantasy. Maybe now we can go sort of full circle from the season long to the daily stuff how does daily fantasy consume your time as opposed to sports betting i'm sure it's changed a fair bit from the i guess the early days of DraftKings and fangel to now but do you want to just take us through what that evolution was like for someone who was here in the u.s sort of living through that let's call it a transition from no daily fantasy to now where daily fantasy is is as much a part of the conversation as any
1: I was big on it early, and I was big on it two years ago, three years ago, when I was still in Las Vegas. Two guys I'm still good friends with to this day. I was doing a TV show with them on the Fantasy Sports Network every Sunday, and then we'd be doing it a couple times during the week. It'd be about three times a week, but the big episode was on Sundays. But we dedicated a large portion of that show to daily fantasy. We figured that would be our niche market, and that was when I was really big on FanDuel and DraftKings. Now, I still play to an extent, but because of the legal issues that have come up and and, and the fact that all the, the companies have spent so much money on advertising and then lawyers, I've kind of taken a step back because I'm waiting for the market to correct itself. I'm waiting for the situation to occur where these guys get widespread approval to be a legal operating business in the United States, and then we can get back down to business. So I still keep a close eye on it. I enjoy DraftKings for golf. I really enjoy it during the football season, but I don't feel as if I have an edge. I understand how the professionals in the daily fantasy sports um, landscape make their living. I understand the systems and the strategies they put into play. I don't have the time to create thousands of teams and to use these algorithms and these programs to to invest 50, 60, $70,000 a weekend to be in as many tournaments as possible based on these algorithms and creations I've come up with through the course of the week. So at the moment, one of the main reasons I'm not more heavily involved in daily fantasy is that I feel it's a sucker's game for a guy like me. I don't think I'm going to be walking into that with any sort of edge. So why invest my money?
0: Makes sense. It certainly seems like all of the uh, all of the research that's gone into some of the uh, the data that's out there now on the the sharks versus the fish and things like that is pretty clear. And I guess once they can shore up the industry a little bit more, they might be able to sort of realign the product to be more uh, friendly for the average player, I guess, and hopefully that'll sort of realign things. So for those who like to play for some entertainment, on a, whether it's a Sunday or or on the weekend, do you have any sort of insight for those people who want to, whether it's playing in a millionaire maker pool or they're going to go in the 50-50 games, a couple of tips or, or tidbits for those who want to spend 10 or 20 bucks and, and like having a daily fantasy team, do you have any sort of things you can pass along that might not necessarily mean they're going to be winning over time, but they might help their chances of getting a collect?
1: Of course. Um, it would start with understanding what kind of pool you're in. The larger the pool you're in, the more different the strategy it needs to be. If you're in a smaller pool and we're talking fifty or fewer people, you have the ability to play some of the bigger names. The guys like Aaron Rodgers, the guys like Julio Jones, right? But if you're playing in a large pool, the millionaire maker for example you're not going to be able to go out there with a lot of the bigger, obvious names and expect to win. The only way you're going to win is if you play a contrarian strategy. You take guys that are lesser known and you hope they hit. Now, that has to be based on credible information. So, for example, you could have a setup where, say, a, a bad team like the 49ers is going to go up against, um, I don't know, maybe a team like, say, Jacksonville or Tennessee, So. Someone who might be shaky in the secondary. And generally, you might not play Pierre Garçon or Jeremy Curley as a wide receiver. But you can get them at a good price, and they're going against a really shaky secondary. So you might take them in that spot, knowing it's not going to be a popular play. You might even uh, team them up with Brian Hoyer, the quarterback. Not a lot of people are going to want to have the Brian Hoyer-Pierre Garçon combination early in the season. That's how you need to be thinking if you want a shot at winning the Millionaire Maker, because if you're going to use the big, obvious names, you're going to be going up against hundreds of thousands of people who are doing the exact same thing and you're going to lower your chances of winning i know it seems strange to go with a lesser quarterback like a marcus mariota over an aaron Rodgers, but it's the only way you have a shot at breaking through you're essentially investing in a lottery ticket and trying to put yourself in a rare situation that would be my advice for daily fantasy players
0: and what about the 50 50s do you can i go andrew luck ty hilton would that be something that's worthwhile or is it again a contrarian but hopefully correct strategy
1: you can get in there. In the 50-50s, you don't have to go as contrarian, but I would still do the research. I, I'd study my opponents more than anything else. Find the names that are in those pools and, and and cross-reference them with some of the other 50-50s. And if you see two or three guys that are entered into 50, 60, 70 of these contests, those are pros. Those are guys that are trying to game you. So understand what you're walking into. If you're going to walk into a 50-50 contest that's got five, six, seven guys who do this for a living – though it's going to decrease your chances of having an opportunity to cash out there. So I would be very careful in 50-50s about the competition, while in the millionaire maker and competitions of that nature, I'd be looking to play more of a contrarian strategy.
0: Got it. So I want to get into NFL and a bit more about college shortly, but before we do, something that's intriguing for me are the New England Patriots for many reasons. How have you approached the Patriots over the last, let's say, five or ten years in the Brady-Belichick era on a week-to-week basis and also even season-long because every year for the last sort of three or four years since I've been you know living in the U.S. I hear every year they're gonna fall off a cliff they're gonna fall off a cliff see what happened to Peyton Manning it's gonna happen it's coming get Garoppolo in there all this sort of chatter and then year after year they win the division they win the conference they get to the Super Bowl how have you been able to sort of balance the statistics which point to a regression back to the mean almost every year, yet the Patriots seem to go 60% against the spread year on year. Do you find creative ways to get around that, or how do you deal with the New England Patriots as an organization from a betting point of view?
1: Just deals on the situation. That's it. What's the situation look like? Um, you're never going to find a great New England Patriots line unless there's some sort of injury. Like You're never going to find it because it's such a public team. There's going to be so much money backing New England because of how good they are how prominent they are, how popular they are, especially if they're playing in a primetime game. You've got to know going into that, you're not getting good value. If New England's at home on a Sunday or Monday night, the value's gone. There's absolutely none whatsoever to play the Patriots. But that doesn't mean you can't play them or find a better opportunity. And in situations like primetime games in New England, home games in New England, I look to use them in one half of a lot of six-point teaser plays. That's one thing I'm big on in the NFL. I know some people think they're a sucker wager, But to be honest with you, I've had a lot of success with six-point teasers over the last three, four, five years. I think there is a way where you can make money on that system. I think long-term, it's just as good as anything else out there, if not better. So that might be one way I look to play the Patriots, Uh, especially if I see them as, say, an eight-point favorite, because then I can tease them with six points, and that'll move them through the key number of seven, through the key number of four, through the key number of three. It'll sit at two. It's a good spot to be in.
0: Okay. So how do you deal with trends in the NFL? Because I see it a lot. And, you know, you turn on ESPN, and I guess they've got to have 24-7 around-the-clock content, so they do come up with some creative information and trends and patterns. Do you, how do you find the meaningful trends, I should say? Is that something you can do, or, or how do you filter out all of the noise to get to them?
1: Use it as one tool in your arsenal. Don't use it as your only tool. Don't find one trend and say, because of this trend, I'm making this play. Use trends to either support your theory or to debunk your theory. Um, A lot of times you can find these trends say, okay, um, the Detroit Lions are 0-6 against the spread over the last six Monday night games. Okay, so Detroit struggles on Monday night. But what if Detroit's played one Monday night game in the last seven years and those other five games go all the way back to the 90s? Is that a relevant trend? No, absolutely not. Different coaching staff, different fans, different players. You can't lump that team into that trend. So you've got to be very particular about the trends you use and about the trends you say might pass on. Home trends, outdoor trends, uh, month of the year trends. Those are ones I'll keep an eye on. Uh, Like a team, Drew Brees and the Saints, they always tend to struggle when they go outdoors. Places like Cleveland, places like Tampa Bay. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think there's something about the way that team is built that they struggle in those situations. Those could be trends that are helpful. But again, if it's, well, Pittsburgh is 0-9 over the last nine Thursday night games, but they've only played two Thursday night games in the last decade, does that trend really matter? No. The answer would be no, it does not.
0: Yeah, okay. Now that makes sense. So we've got NFLs coming up pretty soon. I think the uh, the Hall of Fame games this week and then NFL preseason will be here before we know it. For those looking into maybe having a bet or two in the preseason – what is your mindset and your approach going into NFL preseason? Are there things that you know people can be looking for, or are there even betting propositions that time of the year uh, from your perspective?
1: I won't mess with the preseason too much. I'll, I'll study it, and I'll watch teams and positional battles, but I won't want to mess with it too much because it's very volatile. You've got to understand what you're getting into with the preseason. For example, games 1, 2, and 4 – how much are you going to get out of the starters? Game three is an important one for these teams because that's when they'll let their starters play an entire half of football. Game one, the guy, the starters might get one series. Game four, it's going to be mostly the backups looking to fight for those final few uh, roster spots. You've also got to understand that a lot of teams aren't going to kick extra points in these situations. They'd rather go for two and test that out in the preseason so that can really affect three and three-and-a-half-point lines. You've got to be aware of that. If I was going to play, sometimes I'd look to totals and sometimes I would make sure I'm very familiar with the backup quarterback situations. That is going to be essential because if you move from the starter to a backup and he's terrible and the third string's terrible and the fourth string's terrible, good luck. I'd rather be in a situation where the number two and three guys have some experience and can move the team down the field. So those are some things I'd keep in mind. For the Thursday night game, Dallas and Arizona, I would look to the under. It's currently sitting at about 37 points. I believe, if memory serves me correctly, four of the last five or four of the last six Hall of Fame games have featured 37 or fewer points on the board, and six of the last nine Hall of Fame games have featured fewer than 37 points on the board. So I'd keep an eye on the over for Thursday night's game, or excuse me, the under for Thursday night's game between Dallas and Arizona.
0: There you go. Some real-time insights on the podcast. Uh, You mentioned public money before. So with the NFL, there's obviously a lot of public money, but how do you approach it in 2017 and moving forward? Does it mainly impact the Sunday night games or the marquee games, or is it more widespread, or has it sort of dissipated in importance sort of overall?
1: Well, it's everywhere when you're talking about the NFL. When you're talking about college basketball, when you're talking about maybe pro hoops on a Tuesday night, when you're talking about baseball on a Wednesday night— Public money versus sharp money might be a little bit more obvious to spot, and it could give you some good insights. But the NFL is so heavily wagered that there's going to be a lot of public money everywhere. So the key is sometimes find out where the public is. Because if the public was a long-term winner, you wouldn't have those big, shiny casinos in Las Vegas. That doesn't mean find who the public's on and immediately fade them. But more often than not, if you get the public heavily, 80 85% on one side, And the Sharps are coming back the other way, I'd rather be playing with the Sharps. I think long term, that's going to put some money in my pocket.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, so you mentioned the big shiny casinos. A lot of information that I was reading about, you know, the the NFL lines, they're usually pretty correct. Um, And, you know, the only way to win is to beat the closing number or, you know, get three and a half instead of three a lot of the time or seven and a half, not seven, things like that. And that's the only way to win at NFL because the number's so correct and the market's pretty liquid and there's a lot of, um, you know, smart people out there playing those lines. So the market sort of sits in a pretty good spot. Do you agree with that or in general, or do you think there's, there's other ways to sort of make a living out of betting on the NFL?
1: I would rather play small college conference football, small college conference basketball, because I think there will be more opportunities to get more favorable numbers. If you are going to play the NFL, you've got to study those numbers early in the week you have to have your numbers made up as of Sunday night, and you got to be ready to bet early in the week. That's the bottom line. If you're going to be waking up Sunday mornings, and two hours before kickoff is when you're going to fire your on your NFL games, more often than not, you're going to be in a position where you are getting a square number. And if you're not getting the best of it long term, it's going to be very difficult to give yourself an edge over the casino. So if you really are serious about betting the NFL, you've got to have power numbers, Power ratings, you've got to have ones you research, ones you do yourself, and you've got to create numbers before those lines come out. And when you find the discrepancy, if you can trust your numbers, that's when you've got to make a play. But if you're just going to fire a bet right before the Sunday night game, you're not getting the best of the number. No way.
0: Okay. And that even sounds tough to get the right sort of line movements on your side every time. So it is a bit of a battle. And there's obviously recency bias and a few other things that come into play. But hopefully if the power ratings are there and you can – Bed early get the right number and it's on your side a lot of the time you might have a have a chance
1: absolutely but it's going to take a lot of research and the more you study the game the more you study power rankings line movements teams in the nfl you can see some of these things developing you'll know when a number comes out not always but you'll be able to see a number come out and go ah uh-uh, too low there's going to be a problem there and sure enough if you put the work in you'll be able to spot it and you'll know when to gain an edge Perfect example is Saturday night, UFC. John Jones versus Daniel Cormier. After Jones gets done with the third round knockout, a price comes out on Jones versus Brock Lesnar. Now, that fight hasn't been made yet, but the Westgate in Las Vegas opened a price of John Jones minus 300. Right there. Right there. Anyone who's followed the UFC knows that that is a really good price and that the only direction that price is headed is up. So if you fired at that moment, you got John Jones minus 300. If you waited two hours that price got up to John Jones minus 450. That's a major difference. That is a key difference when it comes to wagering that's going to separate the long-term winners from the long-term losers.
0: Yep. And it sounds like to pick off those numbers, you got to be ready to fire and you got to be an expert, certainly. So you mentioned a little bit before, and it sounds like you're an advocate for specialization and and I guess finding a niche. Can you talk us through that a little bit and how for example if you're talking even college football you've got to go a little bit deeper when you talk about uh baylor versus tcu for example compared to you know alabama lsu um do you think it's feasible for professionals to be ncaa football experts or do you think they have to even go deeper and and find their niche in a certain conference or because there's certain styles of play you know different parts of the the country and and that's obviously got to be a factor right
1: I think you could play it either way. I've seen successful professional sports bettors who fire on a wide variety of disciplines. They play pro and college football. They play hoops. They play hockey. They play baseball. They might be involved in golf and tennis. And that those are guys that are going to know people. They're going to have a network where they can share information back and forth in order to say, hey, maybe I've got a couple tips on the NFL, but you've got a couple tips on NBA. Why don't we work together? Then there are individuals that are really good at what they do, like Ed- Edward Golden, for example, who runs Right Angle Sports out of the Los Angeles area, he focuses on college football, college basketball, and WNBA. And he's very good at what he does. That's going to occupy his year. He's not going to really mess with the NFL. He's not going to be messing with the NHL. It's college football, college basketball, and the WNBA. And that's how he makes his living, by specializing. So it's kind of to each their own, whoever, whatever the, the discipline suits, I do think in some of the smaller sports or smaller conferences, you have an opportunity to gain an edge because the bookmakers aren't going to pay as much attention. For example, the Super Bowl line is going to be rock solid. Whereas, say, college basketball in a game featuring Pacific and Loyola Marymount on a Tuesday night in December, that might offer some value because the books didn't pay as much of attention to it. Not that they got sloppy, but you can put yourself in a more competitive advantage situation against bookmakers with the smaller conferences and the smaller games they only have so many people on staff they can't be experts with every single team and every single single sport for a while I was doing a lot of golf betting four-round matchups head-to-head matchups because I felt that I could put in enough research and watch enough golf that I could have an edge and it wasn't wildly profitable but when I had the time I did quite well betting golf because you study the courses you study the players and you might be able to beat the bookmakers to a good number
0: Yeah, okay. So for those outside of the U.S. or not familiar with college football, can you take us through your approach to rivalry games? And obviously there's certainly some venom and it gets kind of vicious in some of those games with some of the rivalries on and off the field. Um, Is that a legitimate handicapping factor for college football? Whether it's, let's say, Michigan, Michigan State, for example. Michigan are probably going to be pretty good this year. Michigan State might need to bounce back. If the line gets up to... You know, high double digits, is that something that is a legitimate factor in your handicapping? Well,
1: again, it's going to depend on a lot of factors. Who won the game the last time the two got together? Who's trending in the right direction as they get together now? Sometimes teams that are in that revenge spot might offer some value. Maybe you had a 14-point lead, you blew with four minutes to go against your rival last year, and that team's going to be pretty fired up to get you the following season. But in a rivalry game, you would expect Both sides to be focused, both sides to be rested, both sides to be energized and committed to winning the game, and both coaching staffs to put in their best efforts. So it's tough to put it all under one heading and say rivalry games, yes or no, um, they have value. It's really going to be more situational, and that's why you've got to study, and that's why you've got to put in the work. I'd love to be able to say that, yeah, any team that's lost three in a row in a rivalry is going to come back and win game four, but I just don't have the data to support it. I think some rivalry games mean more than others. And you just have to play it situation by situation, game by game, some will offer some value, some probably won't
0: so a buddy of mine like Stanford this year in the college football, I think he said he was going to get two hundred to one for them to to win the the championship now. they might not win the championship two hundred and one two hundred to one implies it probably won't but you being in the Bay Area, can you just take us through Stanford this season for maybe thirty seconds and also perhaps uh a college football sleeper, the non-Alabamas, the non-Ohio States of the world that you like going into the season?
1: Well, as it pertains to Stanford, they're very well coached. David Shaw is one of the best in the business. A bit too conservative for my liking, but he's still a buttoned-up, lock-it-down type of head coach. And he's got a good situation this season. Now, a lot of people are worried about the loss of Christian McCaffrey and how it's going to affect the team. I do think Stanford is going to be better this year than they were last year, and they are going to cause some problems because of their style of play. But at 200-1, to one, I'm not sure I'm willing to take that shot. USC is going to be an absolute beast this season. They're going to be very difficult to get by. UCLA is going to have a quality program. Washington's going to come back strong. And I would say if you're looking for a sleeper, Washington State is the type of team that can make some serious noise this season. So I would keep a very close eye on Washington State. So as far as 200-1... to one, I'm not sure I see Stanford getting out of the Pac-12, but it's not a bad ticket. That's a decent price for a well-coached team. And maybe they catch fire, they get a couple breaks, and they find themselves in the playoff. It's a whole new era in college football now that we have a four-team playoff rather than a simple two-team championship. More avenues to get in and wreak havoc. So for Stanford, I wouldn't play them at 200-1, but I don't think it's the worst in the world. I think Washington State's a nice little sleeper. I'd also keep a very close eye on Penn State in the Big Ten. I think they're due for a big year. The one negative to Penn State is that they have back-to-back games against Michigan and Ohio State. That could be the ultimate downfall of the Nittany Lions. But they closed very strong last season, and I could see them finding a way in as maybe the third or fourth team in the playoff. And once you're there, it's anybody's business.
0: Before we close out on college football, Joe Fortenball owns a college team in an alternate universe. You make it to the college football playoff. You get to pick Saban or Harbaugh for that one game. Who are you taking?
1: Saban. Saban's won. Harbaugh hasn't. I think Jim is a great program builder. He built up a program at University of San Diego. He brought the, built up a program at Stanford. He built up the 49ers, and he's built up Michigan. He is an excellent program builder. But the one thing that's absent from San Diego, Stanford, the Niners, and Michigan is a championship. He's yet to win a title. That doesn't mean I don't think he can't win one. Um, I think he's very capable of it, but – until he shows me he can be on the biggest stage and he can close it out, I would much rather have a guy like Nick Saban who's done it year after, year after year after year after year at Alabama. Say what you want, he may have lost to Clemson last year, but he got him the year before. Clemson was a hell of a football team. And Saban always has his team in the playoff. He always has them ready to go. That's the coach I would, I would have if I have to choose between he and Harbaugh.
0: He certainly makes college football fun, and I guess, you know, Put the, I, I've never seen Michigan as a powerhouse. I've heard about it, and certainly seeing Harbaugh back there and the rivalry with Ohio State and a few other teams makes it certainly more interesting. And you touched on Clemson. I, As far as I'm concerned, you are the NFL draft expert in this country, and from a betting perspective, there's no better information out there than what you're putting out. The first round this year, we saw Trubisky go early. Mahomes sort of crept up late, and then was the Chiefs sort of swooped in. And then obviously Watson was there from Clemson. What was your sort of take on how the first round sort of played out with regards to the quarterbacks? And I don't think Trubisky was necessarily a surprise. Maybe that uh, that trade going up from the from the Bears was a bit strange in hindsight. But how, what was your take on the the three QBs and perhaps the looking forward into the next couple of seasons in the NFL? how they might translate, and who you'd like to have as your leader of the franchise?
1: Well, that's always going to come down to system and coaching, but more on that. Um, Seeing all three go in the first round wasn't a surprise. That was something we wagered, and that was something we were predicting heading into the draft. Seeing Trubisky go as high as he did, I don't like him. I'm not a fan of him. I watched him at North Carolina. I I think he's, he's okay, but there aren't a lot of guys with that little college experience who have come into the pros and had remarkable careers. Jameis Winston, multiple-year starter. Marcus Mariota, multiple-year starter. Peyton Manning, Eli Manning, Phillip Rivers, Drew Brees, Tom Brady. Just go down the list of good quality starters in the NFL and look at how many games they started in college. And then compare it with Trubisky, who started 12 games in college. I don't think he's ready for the pro game. And I think Chicago's a bad fit for him. Um, At Soldier Field, you need a big arm you need to be able to cut through the wind, especially late in the season. Something Jay Cutler had, but he lacked other intangibles. I don't think Trubisky has that. And and I think it's going to take a while for him to get up to speed. And by a certain point when he might be ready to go, you're going to get a new head coach and a new GM. I could see them cleaning out that office because John Fox is okay, but he's not great. And at some point he runs out of time, like he did in Carolina, like he did in Denver. And I see it happening in Chicago as well. So it wasn't a surprise to see Trubisky go early because so many people were talking about it. I just wasn't a fan of the move. Watson's a guy I really liked. I know a lot of scouts were trying to cut him down, but, you know, let's be honest. Um, he went up against the best team in the country two years in a row on the biggest of stages and the brightest of lights and had two monster performances. What's What else do you need to see? Like, what else do you need to see from Deshaun Watson to feel good? These people, these scouts, they see guys like Jay Culler. Oh, he's 6'5", 240. He can move around the pocket. He's got a huge arm. Yeah, but he, he never won anything. He never did anything. And, and then he got to the pros and he was a nice quarterback, but nothing more. Watson's a proven winner. I mean, he makes plays in big spots. He doesn't crumble crumb under the pressure. And these guys want to show me arm velocity in Indianapolis at the Combine and say that's a reason he shouldn't have gone high. I don't know. I don't, I don't get it. Mahomes is interesting, but he's a developmental project. That's going to take a couple years. If you think Patrick Mahomes is stepping in this season, you're sorely mistaken. If I can only have one of the three, I take Deshaun Watson. That's the guy I like the most.
0: Was there anyone else from the first round that you liked? Uh, whether it was you know OJ or one of those other guys that sort of OJ fell a little bit. Maybe one of those receivers up there who can make a difference that might be you know worthwhile from a fantasy perspective, or maybe a, a sleeper in one of the drafts.
1: I'd have to go back and look. O.J. Howard out of Alabama falling to to, uh, Tampa Bay. That's a real nice spot for him, and that's a great weapon for Jameis Winston. I don't see Howard catching 85 passes for 1,200 yards and 12 scores because Deshaun Jackson's there, as is Mike Evans. But I think he becomes a very reliable red zone target, and that's where he's going to make some noise both in fantasy and on the field on a weekly basis. Um, I thought the 49ers had a solid draft. They grabbed Solomon Thomas early. He comes out of Stanford. That'll help the front seven. Then they bring in Rolando McClain. Uh, McClain that's another linebacker. Ruben Foster, excuse me, the middle linebacker out of Bama. Um, there's some question marks there. Bama, Bama linebackers, they tend to struggle in the NFL. One of the reasons is because they play behind such a dominant defensive line that they're clean to run free and make plays. You don't get that in the NFL. It's the same reason so many Alabama running backs struggle at the next level. They run behind the best offensive line in the business, opening up huge holes and mowing down the opposition. Then they get to the pros and they don't have that advantage and suddenly they can't make plays. Eddie Lacey, Trent Richardson, Mark Ingram, TJ Yeldon, Derek Henry. Some of them have had nice careers, but none of them have been worthy of their draft pick. They've all underachieved, I would say. So I, I did like what the Niners did regardless of that. I think they, they got aggressive. They made two plays that are going to help them. And if I was to look around at some of the other teams, I'm kind of spacing at the moment because I forget about how the draft played out, but... Um, you know, Houston getting Deshaun Watson, I do think that's going to help them long-term.
0: So can anything happen in the offseason, significant, whether it's a draft or some trades or even a new head coach that can shift your thoughts from a betting perspective, whether it's season wins or things like that? Are you interested now in, you know, do you think Jameis can take the leap and then maybe the Bucs can sort of get to the playoffs? Or are you all in on the Mariota hype? You know, do you think Andrew Luck's going to come back and the Colts might push back into the playoffs? It sounds like the 49ers are are going to be better than they were certainly in recent years. Are there anything, or is there any information or any moves that sort of shift your mindset when it comes to betting on, on NFL?
1: I'd say coaching, depending on the coaching staff. You know, free agency, it's not about making a ton of splashy moves. If that's your style, you're not going to win. How often does a team go out and make five, ten huge moves in free agency and then come back to burn everybody the next year? It very rarely happens. Think about the Eagles and the Dream Team. Everyone said they were loaded. They sucked that year. So I'm not looking for huge, splashy moves in free agency. Maybe a couple to fill in the gaps. Uh, have a nice draft. But again, you it's, it's tough to project rookies. Coaching staffs, I would say, are important depending on who gets hired, who gets fired. And then more important than anything else, I'd say the NFL schedule release. I think that's the most important day in the offseason. Finding the situational spots that are going to put teams at an advantage. You know, a lot of casual fans just look and say, oh, okay, win, win. We'll lose this one. We'll win this one. We'll travel to Seattle. That's a loss. But you've got to go deeper than that you got to understand you're playing on the road on a Sunday and then you're traveling 1,500 miles to play on the road on a Thursday night. That's a bad spot. You know, playing on the road three times in four weeks, having to be outdoors in Pittsburgh, and New England in late December if you're Miami or a team like s- the Los Angeles Chargers. Those are the factors you need to take into account. Travel, tough spots, how many games you're going to face a team that's coming off a bye, um, how many times you're going to face a team heading into a bye that's where you can really find an advantage when it comes to season win totals.
0: Yeah, certainly. I feel like I want to open up the, the account now and take a look at some of the prices. This is certainly <laughs> fun and I could go on for hours. I got a couple more before I let you go, if that's all right, Joe. I want to dig into your brain on the money management side and a lot of our sort of guests previously have spoken about Kelly Criterion and, and modified Kelly Criterion and some of them have you know separate bankrolls for, for their bets and things like that maybe a nugget or two for the casual fan who wants to sort of push up into the next level of better and maybe – may not be professional, but, you know, semi-professional and take it a little bit more seriously. You touched on it earlier about some of the keys with discipline. Are there one or two things that you've done or you've seen others, what they've done in the past that can sort of be useful for the average listener and, and their betting overall?
1: I I'm not as – I don't have the Kelly Criterion memorized to the point where I can lay it out for you here. I would just say this. If you're going to take this thing seriously, you've got to be disciplined. You've got to understand that if you've got a bankroll of $2,000, you can't have $500 on a game. That's just not going to work. That's poor bankroll management. If you have a bankroll of $1,000, you shouldn't be betting $100 or $200 on a game. That's 10 to 20%. You need to be betting somewhere in the neighborhood of, I don't know, maybe 5% of your bankroll on a game. Max, that's the li- area you have to live in. You've got to be able to withstand the losses. You've got to be able to keep yourself humble when you're on the winning streaks. Because if, a, if you go into an NFL weekend and you go 0 for 6, and that not only bankrupts you, but it forces you to into a situation where you can't make ends meet or you can't pay your bills, you shouldn't be gambling. This should be money that if you lose... It's not the end of the world for you. If you win, it supplements the income. If you lose, so be it. But you can't put yourself in a spot. I see that happen time and time again with young guys who fire way too much and then they drink and then they try to chase it later in the day. Anyone who's doing that, that's just stupid. Long term, you're gonna get busted right out of the game. The guys that have been doing this for years are the guys that understand how to make smart wagers, how to stay sober at the right times, and how to manage their bankroll. If you're gonna come in fire, $200 of a $1,000 bankroll on a Sunday morning NFL favorite five minutes before kickoff. Long term, I'm not going to see you in the casino. You're going to go bust pretty quick.
0: Yeah, I think that's a clear message, certainly. Two more before I let you go. Hilton Super Contest. How important is it becoming? And is there any useful information that people can use? Because I believe they at least publish or they have some information available before kickoff. Is that right?
1: Saturday morning, they'll show you the picks everyone's made. And it's important to track the top five and ten when you get to maybe the middle of the season. First couple weeks, I mean, the only value you'll have in that info is seeing the consensus plays. If you've got 70% of the pool on a certain pick, you might want to stay away from that. But the winner, this has gotten to be such a prestigious contest, and there's so many people in it, that the winner's routinely hitting 70% or greater on his pick. So that's a guy you'd want to piggyback and ride over the final, maybe say, six or seven weeks of the season. Take a look at what the top five's doing and follow those guys. i played in this a few times. I missed the money. I think it was three years ago by one game, one game. If I had won one more game, I would have been able to cash it like 22nd or something like that. It's a hell of a lot of fun. It's a $1,500 investment. It's gonna be a lot of fun throughout the course of the season to play. And you can gain some information from the guys at the top of the pool in the middle of the season. and I'd, I'd recommend it. If you can get get the Vegas and you can fill it out and pay the 1500 and you can figure out how to get a proxy to turn in your picks, you'd have a lot of fun. That that, that The years I did that were some of the best, and I'm definitely getting back into it this season.
0: Yeah, sounds good. I'm going to have to get myself out there and uh, cash my Falcons championship ticket. Unfortunately, not my Super Bowl ticket, but I might have to uh, jump in on the Hilton Super Contest. Sounds like a good deal. There you go. One more thing before I let you go. Uh, For those who want to get more information about betting in the U.S. and NFL, I suggest they follow you, certainly, and and all the stuff you're doing. Colin Cowherd does his Blazing Five. I enjoy listening to some of the stuff from Colin. Gil Alexander is very good. He had, I think it was Beating the Book. He's now with VSIN, I believe. Is there anyone else out there you can point uh, the listeners to to be able to get some more information about the, the NFL, especially in the college football?
1: Gil's fantastic. I would listen to his beating. I actually did his show earlier today, I, and he did my podcast earlier today. So it's funny that you bring him up because I talked to him multiple times today. I would say listen to his Friday beating the uh, book podcast. Todd Furman and Pain Insider have a podcast as well. I I, I think it's called Betting the Board. Yeah, um, I think you're right. I apologize to those guys for not knowing it offhand. I've appeared on. i've listened to it i just it's all the names get mixed up but those two very smart individuals very well connected todd used to work at caesars he's been in the the business a long time and pain insider knows what he's doing there's a reason you've heard his name five six years in a row it's because he hasn't gone broke because he knows what he's doing so those, those are a couple guys i'd keep an eye on i'd read stuff from covers i would track line movements using sports insights or another free odd service those would be the key there are a lot of other great guys out there bookmakers and dudes in Vegas but once you start following guys like Gill and Todd you'll see the rest of them come up.
0: And where can they find you? Twitter's the best obviously covers.com and National Football Post, right?
1: Uh no longer at National Football Post but you can find my work at covers.com. Um we've got a podcast we're doing now called The Sharp 600. We do it twice a week but we're looking to extend it. It's only 10 minutes. It's just 10 minutes to get you set for the next few days, a couple key tips. A key interview to give you some information, but that's available on iTunes and everywhere else. Uh, my articles, once a week, covers.com, and on 95.7, the game in the Bay Area. We've got a podcast as well. There isn't as much gambling information there, but during the football season, the beat the bookie segment has been profitable two years in a row, and I think I've made somewhere close to 300 picks. So it's, it's fun. You're not going to make a huge profit off the plays, but uh, I, I have been winning, and it's been a good time.
0: Joe Fontenbaugh, being a great chat. I appreciate your time. It's great fun and I uh, hope to do it again soon.
1: Yeah, Jake, thanks for having me on, man. I'm glad we finally were able to connect. This was a good time. I appreciate it.